And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Cood Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Schrein and Gary K. Wolf on the Cood Street Podcast. And we want to thank everybody for their patience when we were off the air for a while. I was down in Florida at the ICFA and then spent a few days on vacation in Key West and then got COVID and came back. And from Joe Haldeman. Uh, yeah, with, with, with Joe and Gay Haldeman. Uh, and I feel terrible. Terribly guilty because we've been on two vacations with the Haldemans. One was last August in Alaska. And Joe got COVID at that one. He'd never gotten COVID before. And he'd never gotten COVID since until we showed up in Key West with him. And then he got it again. His, his so who's VA, the disease vector? Is it Joe and Guy or you and Dale? Well, Joe, as far as I could tell, Joe's VA doctor said, stop vacationing with those people. <laughs> probably wise advice. Now, is this because you're having too much fun or because you keep infecting them? I've, I've never have I've never had COVID in three and a half years until two weeks ago when we were literally the day we were coming back uh, from, from Florida. And uh, Joe probably picked it up at ICFA. There were people there who had it. So this was the first COVID conference uh disease I've, 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 I've ever gotten. And I thought, I thought I'm home free. I'm not going to get COVID. I'm going to this conference where everybody's sitting outside drinking. Nobody's wearing masks anymore. And of course, after you think the plague is over, it comes back and demolishes the other one third of the European pop population. We're doomed. I tell you, we're doomed. doomed. We're all doomed. That's cheery. Well, that was fun. That was a Cood Street podcast for you people. Well... <laughs> We haven't had much to talk about. I was going to say, we should do some newsy stuff, Gary. Let's do some newsy stuff. Okay, here's the first newsy stuff I was going to touch on because it occurred to me. It is awards season, as you know. In fact, in the science fiction fantasy genre, it is always awards season because we have more right. awards than we have anything else. And right now, we're coming up against the tasty end of two major awards on April the 15th. A mere five days from when we're recording this, six if you're in the United States. Mm-hmm. The voting for the or the yeah the voting for the Locus Awards closes. So if you want to mm-hmm. nominate for the Locus Awards, sorry, I just said yeah, yeah. If you want to nominate or vote for the Locus Awards, you need to get in and do that thing because April the fifteenth. Similarly, the the nomination phase for the twenty twenty three Hugo Awards closes on April the fifteenth, I believe. So mm-hmm. you also need to fire up your Chengdu links if you're Chengdu compatible. And do your Hugo nominating. And when you do, please keep in mind the Cood Street Podcast, your friendly neighborhood podcast. And having voted for the um, Hugo Awards some weeks ago, it uh, even though the, the emails look complicated and intimidating, once you get into the voting... Uh, it's pretty much the same. It's, it's, pre- it's pretty much the same thing. It's very easy to do. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. So uh, I think that for all the... Uh, criticism that the Chengdu committee has 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 faced some of it no doubt justified they put they find it was the delay in getting the Hugo Awards website up it's up it's working it's fine you can vote um, and uh, I presume your vote will be recorded as it always was actually I lied I misremembered I'm gonna okay. fine tune it right now and correct it correct us before people start understandably emailing the Hugos close on April the 30th so you have till the end of this month however, uh-huh. The nominations for the or the voting for the Nebulas, which only uh, impact a very small number of our listeners, mm-hmm. April fifteen. So April fifteen for the Locus Awards, April fifteen for the Nebula Awards, and April thirty for the Hugo Awards. Awards, and awards, world, awards. And world fantasy nominations are open, are they not? They are indeed. If you're if you're eligible to nominate, uh, and I encourage you to be so, because if you if you nominate for the World Fantasy Awards this year. Uh, it means you're probably eligible, and you're sorry for hearing me type away, everybody. I'm just trying to get the information up. Uh, if you nominate for the World Fantasy Awards this year, it means you're probably going to attend the Kansas City World Co- World Fantasy Convention, mm-hmm. which means you can come hang out with us because I'm going to be at the World Fantasy Convention, and so is Gary. And you are one of the two guests of honor, and a longtime friend of the podcast, Kids Johnson, is the other guest of honor. So it'll just many, be one. Many. They've got more, they have more guests of honor than I've They've had. They've got more guests hot, of honor. Billions. Okay. Billions, Gary. And now, now I'm obligated to, to expand upon them. Otherwise, I will have been rude to my, my fellow guests, and you couldn't have that. So there's me 
honestly mm-hmm. not your first choice, let's be honest. There's Kidge, who is four kinds of awesome and we love her. There are two brilliant Toastmasters, Tanana Reeve Dway and Stephen Barnes. Or is it Jew? I keep thinking it's Dway. Is it Jew? I think it's Dew. It's Dew, I believe. Okay. Uh, two artist guests of honor. Elizabeth Leggett and Vincent Villafranca. And I'm really excited that um, Vincent Villafranca is a guest of honor because I bought one of his bronzes once and I'm hoping there will be more available at the convention. Excellent. There's also Adam Troy Castro, who's been very ill lately and hopefully will be recovered uh, Mm. for his appearance at Kansas City. And then one of my favorite people, another one of my favorite people, um, Pat Cadigan is a special guest. Excellent. So the, the chance, I mean, forget me, the chance of seeing Kids Johnson and St- Stephen and Tanana Reeve and Elizabeth Legge and, and, and Adam Troy Castro and Pat and Pat. And you've got to know that if, where, whether Pat goes, inextricably bound together, Dat- Ellen Datlow will be mere half a step behind. Oh, that's right. They'll be rooming. There's a good chance they'll be rooming together again. Or possibly. Whither goest, uh, Pat, thither goest Ellen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's many reasons to come to this convention. Uh, I know Kansas you know, you might, uh, Kansas City might not be the ideal place. I don't know. I mean, actually, I tell a lie. We've, I'm rambling. You've been to there. Kansas City just We've a few years ago. We've been to Kansas ago. City. I was going to say. It has and- great barbecue. It has a jazz museum. It has all sorts of I – mean, like all Midwestern cities, you're in a downtown sort of convention hotel area, uh, but it's not at all hard to get out into the city itself. Um, and, and, and to find the old yes. Kansas City, the, the kind of gangster-ridden Kansas City of the 30s and 40s is still there, buried under concrete, um, but it's nevertheless uh, a charming Midwestern town. I grew up 60 miles from Kansas City. My childhood, my, the high point of my childhood was convincing my dad to drive us into Kansas City 60 miles away, go to a bookstore, which was called the 12th Street Bookstore, which I remember very, very well. I even know where mm-hmm. it is. Um, yep. Because it turns out that this bookstore I went to literally in the 1950s was the same bookstore that James Gunn had gone to when he was a kid in the 1930s. And, yep. I, and, and the, the last time I saw Jim, we were talking about it and we figured out where, these, where this bookstore was on 12th Street. And if you remember the large convention center that was the home of the Kansas City Worldcon, and I believe the same one as the home of the uh, Kansas City World Fantasy, that classic bookstore where you could buy pulp magazines from the 30s and 40s for a quarter each that bookstore is about 40 feet underneath the concrete which is the foundation of the new convention center so it's very possible that if if we got trip hammers and dug down deep into kansas city we could find an old pulp bookstore still somewhere down in the labyrinths i like to think that anyway i'm, I'm, I'm trying I'm, I'm i can see that's a good thing it's a certainly very amusing idea for an urban fantasy story. Also kind of horrific if you think about it. Do you really want old pulp books that badly, Gary? No, but the thing the thing about bu- buying pulps back then, I was never a pulp collector. I never tried to get complete runs of Astounding and that sort of thing. But what I wanted to do even then as a young reader, since I'd heard so much about the pulps, was I wanted to read these stories in a pulp magazine. I wanted to, I wanted to read a Lovecraft story with a Charles Atlas bodybuilding ad in the middle of it. I wanted to smell what the, uh, in other words, the experience of reading a pulp was, I suspected, and I'm convinced I was right, was not the experience of reading uh, the same story in in, in a nicely bound Library of America edition, for example. So the experience of reading, the physical experience of reading uh, has changed over the years. Nobody reads pulps anymore, of course, Few people read digests anymore, and more and more people are reading online. My point is that the culture, the cultural matrix in which you experience science fiction and fantasy and horror, yep. from the 20s through the 50s, um, disappeared, has completely disappeared. Yep. Sure. sure. I think that's probably true. Which kind of brings up another issue. Yes, that, that was no kind of response. That was a terrible response from me. It was a real conversation killer, wasn't it? Well, no, it's, 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 it has something to do with an article which you had sent to me, and we yes. probably should invite our, our good friend Paul Kincaid, who is one of Britain's leading science fiction and fantasy critics, um, who post, post, posted an argument that essentially science fiction's fundamental shape, the genre, was fundamentally shaped in the interwar years, after um, after the First World War and before the Second World War, and he has all kinds of good arguments for that. Um, but his argument partly goes to 
the way it was read, the context in which it was read. Um, and I'd love, we need to actually ask Paul about that. Um, yeah, but, I mean, the argument seems to me uh, not a, you know, a reasonable one in, uh, on face value that while science fiction may or may not date back to centuries before the existence of, of uh, astounding stories and amazing stories, the, the, the period between 1926 and the Second World War was when the the generic stuff of commercial North American science fiction was founded. Right. And that there have been has have been repeated attempts to maintain that as the core of the identity of the genre, including when you look at things like, you know, sort of like things like the new space opera of trying mm. to, are an attempt to continue to bring that back to the fore. Now, personally, without engaging further in, um, in Paul's argument, because that's something that you say, I would say, I don't th- I think those things are always part of the generic identity of science fiction, whether they're at the forefront of it or not, is something else. Well, I guess that's the question I would ask is whether it's really a defining, uh, kind of, uh, characteristic of the field. I was thinking something along the same lines, but I was, I was coming at it from a different angle. For example, um, the idea of um, atomic war, of nuclear radiation, certainly obsessed science fiction as it did the rest of the world in the post-war era. And, and this was true as far as I could tell of the European and, and Jap- certainly in the Japanese science fiction. But um, the kind of some of the central images of science fiction simply adapted themselves to whatever the latest science was. In other words, my argument is instead of science fiction responding to scientific development, um, science fiction used those scientific developments to rejigger what it was already writing about. Let me give you an example, and I'll tell you exactly what made me think of this. I'm reading uh, a a new novel by Nicole Corner Stace, um, which is called um, Flight and Anchor. And it's a, it's a prequel to her earlier novel, Firebreak. But what it really is, uh, at, at its center, a couple of super intelligent kids with superpowers have escaped from the lab where essentially they were created. Now, that's not a new idea at all. Uh, but it's, it's gen- genetic engineering. It's all kinds of things that go into making super kids these days. So I started thinking back, where do we see this in science fiction? Well, you see a kind of fantasy version of it in Van Vogt's Land, which is 1940. Uh, But the idea of kids with superpowers being on the run from mean adults uh, was such a powerful idea that when the bomb came along, you started getting the mutants. You had a series of Henry Kuttner stories. You had Wilmer Shiras's Children of the Atom, which I think is one of the under one of the more influential and underrated books in the history of science fiction. Children of the Atom deals with kids who are super intelligent and who are mutated that way because of nuclear energy. So in other words, you have what essentially is a fantasy about fandom with Van Vogt. Now it's rationalized by nuclear radiation because, of course, everybody knows that radiation will turn you into a mutant within weeks. It has nothing to do with biology at all. It's the but core then, of the X-Men and, the, and that stuff as well. And, and the, there's, there have been arguments that Stan Lee may have seen uh, Wilmer Shiras's novel. But yeah, by the time the core of the X-Men, the mutations are no longer necessarily um, nuclear or atomic war things. Eventually you get um, these sort of despised bright kids on the run. They're the result of cloning. They're the result of genetic engineering. You have even people like Ishiguro with Never Let Me Go writing about this sort of thing. And, uh, and now you have not only the X-Men, but the Umbrella Academy. My point is, that this basic idea in science fiction of super bright kids who are despised by society at large has been consistent for the last 80 years, and it just adapts the latest science so it can continue to tell the same story. And not even science, but the latest, uh, the mores and whatever <laughs> of the day, the cultural interests. Yeah, in exactly. So, for example, I don't think I don't know if you've read Some Desperate Glory by Emily Tesh, Mm-mm. which is a debut science fiction novel this year, but it's basically super kid a super super kids on the run from bad people yeah uh as well i mean there's other things about it it's dressed up a particular way but there's that core story engine as well the same one well that's that's kind of the point i'm getting at is that you know we find uh that's that's the super intelligent kid motif which runs through science fiction and as you say responds to cultural matrices if you look at disaster stories uh there were 
a few natural disaster stories. I mean, obviously there were things like earthquakes. There was as Fowler writes the deluge. There were uh, natural disasters and volcanic disasters. But then uh, nuclear holocaust became the disaster to write about for a, a good forty or fifty years. That we we like to this we like to wipe out big cities. I mean, one of my favorite my favorite one sentence review of any movie review I ever read was Pauline Kael's review of a movie called Earthquake. And she said her, 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 her three-word review was, L.A. gets it. And her point was, we don't mind. We just want ways to wipe out L.A. So you do it with atomic war, and then you can do it with volcanoes. There's actually a movie about a volcano erupting in downtown L.A., which delightfully unhinged. But now, of course, it's environmental. Uh, so gradually, you, you keep the same disaster generation after generation. You just change the cause of the disaster to meet with current anxieties. Yes, I think that's fair. Um, and certainly you, you see this, these say, whatever the themes may be, whether it's disaster or else, recurring over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, you know, I mean, like right now, there's that question about, you know, what are we grappling with now? And it's obviously individual identity and the Anthropocene are the two primary right. things that seem to be driving everything right now. Uh, and everything else is then ways of in, uh, looking at that, manifesting with that, uh, no matter where you go. Uh, and that's not super surprising. No, it's not. I, I think one of the, I, mean, I think it's a healthy development because one of the questions we are asking now in order to hold on to these old things is to ask questions about them we did not use to ask. Let's take the other idea of space opera, which arguably, uh, and, and I think you make a persuasive argument, began in the 20s. It began with Doc Smith and continued through the big space operas of the 30s. Um, and the the gigantic space battles and the enormous galactic uh, conspiracies and that sort of thing uh, have, have maintained uh, their identity over several generations. The question we've been asking for the last couple of generations is who gets to participate in space opera? Who gets to go into space? And it's not all... Uh, bright young rocket boys anymore. So in other words, you take a, a very old trope and you it's, it's become almost a cliche in promo letters I get now where you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, lesbian vampires in space, the, the, the known of the ninth kind of thing. You're taking tropes from other areas. You're taking identities which have been excluded from science fiction and putting them in the center of science fiction. So you're kind of reinventing an old idea um, by paying attention to character in a way that the inventors of those ideas never really did. Do you think we're finding new types of stories in there to tell as well? Because as we've discussed often here, really there's a very good chance we're not going into space and the space opera thing is never going to happen. Space opera has become a subset of epic fantasy now. Uh, yeah, I could, I could see that argument. And if that has some merit, then what are the new stories we're trying to tell or have we yet to see them emerge do you think um i'm uh, the two two novels i read uh in the, in the in the past year um made me think about this a little bit alien intelligence for example first contact has is a very very old idea uh but uh, the the novels i'm thinking of are the ones by uh, uh ray naylor and, and lee mandelo both of which deal with communicating with existing species on earth they're both, in a sense, first contact stories. But they're yeah, first contact the stories... Mountain in the sea and feed me silence. Yes, exactly. Feed them silence. Um, yeah. And they're, they're, they're rethinking old ideas. They're, re, they're both rethinking the first contact idea. But they're mm-hmm. rethinking it in terms of legitimate ongoing concerns about, uh, about the Anthropocene, really, about what we're doing to the other species that, that, that live on the planet with us. So in other words, it's reinventing the first contact tale uh, to make it a, um, a, I'm not sure what the term, I'm not sure what the adjective is. I know in the academic world, what they now call animal studies is a big thing. Studies, mm. novels, fiction, poetry, movies that deal with the relationship between humans and the other creatures with which we share the planet. But I think that's, for example, a very good example, a very good uh, illustration of, of how a familiar idea is reinvented in terms of Actual science. I mean, both of them are very well thought out as hard as seven yeah. novels. One of them on the nebula ballot right now. Yes, exactly. And isn't Feed Them Silence a 2023 book? I believe it is. You're right. So for so. next year, year's awards. Speaking of awards, and this all sort of 
cycles around, mm-hmm. you would have seen that there is a proposal, not an actual commitment yet, but a proposal from the Glasgow Worldcon Committee to add this this year a special category award for the Hugos. Now, under the Hugo rules, each mm-hmm. year the committee can add one category, you know, as a trial or whatever. And there have been several of these that have segued into permanent uh, mm-hmm. new things. You know, like that's how the YA award was trialed. I think it's how the gaming writing one was trialed. I think it's how uh, a couple others were. And they're proposing a best fantasy novel category, which strikes me as pretty un- unambiguously confusing and unnecessary. Um, the Hugos have always openly included fantasy novels. So it strikes me you then have to get into a definitional bout- battle that you're not going to win in 2023 when genre boundaries, as you yourself have argued, Gary, are evaporating and are yes, uh, exactly. blurred beyond all, all meaning. Uh, and open up the one of the great fundamental no-nos of Hugo Awards, which is double eligibility. You know, do you, is this book that you're reading eligible for the fantasy or the science fiction award? Given that, it is um, perhaps unclear as to which it belongs to. Or and perhaps, I know that... When I was mentioning the, the, the vampires in space thing, I was thinking of Tamsin Muir. You could argue that those are fantasy novels and you could argue that they're science fiction novels. There are clearly elements of both at work in them. And that's happening more and more. My sense is that the idea of creating a fantasy category has very little to do with fantasy and probably without knowing the motivations of who's proposed it or even who did propose it. It seems to me a way of trying to build a kind of wall around the science fiction that once was dominant and no longer is dominant in the best novel category. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that's the case or not. I, I I couldn't say, but it does feel like it's trying to to create a a a barrier between the two that does isn't reflected in sort of you know the modern time. I mean, this is one of the reasons when I was editing the best science fiction and fantasy of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, there was always you know if you like three areas that that you're editing ed- reading in science fiction, fantasy, and that bit that blurred large mm-hmm. or small, but between the two. And there was no useful way of uh, breaking them down. I can't see that this is actually going to get up as even a test category, and I can't believe that it would be run more than once if it was, because I can't imagine the readership supporting it. I mean, for these things to work, the readership have to support it. And then there's also that thing that the Hugo administrators tend to do, which is they leave decisions, to, if you will, to the wisdom of the voters. Yeah. Um, And I think the voters' wisdom will go... This is confusing. It is confusing. I mean, your, your proposal only, as far as I understand it, deals with the novel. So essentially, you're erecting a kind of genre barrier barrier for novels, but not for novelettes or novellas or, or, or short stories. Uh, in other words, you're saying this one kind of fiction needs to be split off between science fiction and fantasy, but we'll leave all the short fiction categories as they are, uh, which certainly could be more confusing. It also kind of continues to circle an uncomfortable question that Hugo voters have been try- have circled for a while. I mean, it kind of relates in my mind to this the best series category they brought in a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the question was, how do you deal with when you're looking at what's eligible for awards and how good they are, how bad they are? Um, book, you know, books that are part of a larger work, these favorite fantasy mm. series of mine particularly, and I know science fiction series have won the award, but nonetheless, it feels like it was a question like, what do you do with big fantasy series? Shouldn't they be eligible for something? And now you're saying, shouldn't they be eligible for even more? Don't you get into even more confusing territory? It just It doesn't seem like it's got what it needs to sort of stand up and make sense to me. I think, and, and the other part of the argument, and I just quickly read their proposal, was that, uh, well, maybe there people complain that there are too many Hugo categories, and the way to make room for a category like this is to slice off some of the categories that get few nominations and few votes, which I think, um, I mean, it, it, this is, let's be honest, this is selfish on your part and my part, because one of the categories that get few nominations and few votes is, is fan cast. But I think eliminating, arguing to eliminate the small categories in order to get more votes for the large categories misunderstands a fundamental part of what the Hugo has been historically, which is partly, yeah. it's partly a celebration of the literature, uh, which is what the fiction categories are for, yeah. and partly a celebration of the community, 
which is why you have fan writer and fan artist and fan cast and, uh, and, and various categories that recognize the community of science fiction and not just, in other words, it's, the Hugos historically have not been just a literary award. The ones that get paid attention to obviously are the little awards. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that have made Worldcons enormously popular is that you get to watch uh, a fan who's been laboring on, um, well, years ago on a fanzine, uh, now on who knows what kind of media, getting the kind of recognition a major novelist does. You could say that's, it's, it's not parallel, and of course it's not parallel. But the point is that the Hugo Awards have been a celebration of community as much as a celebration of literature, and I think that's an important thing to continue to recognize. While we both plainly have our reservations about this particular proposed category, which may or may not happen, mm-hmm. and I kind of think probably shouldn't happen, that's for the Glasgow World um, Worldcon, which is happening next year mm-hmm. uh, in Scotland. Uh, and one of the categories that will be presented, what, you'll see how I'm segueing around here. It's, oh, good. it's nice, I think. I'm, I'm waiting. Good. Will be the best related work category. Uh-huh. Now, there are two books being published in 2023 that will be eligible for the 2024 best related work. There will be A Traveler in Time, The Critical Practice of Maureen Kincaid Speller, which is going to be edited by uh, Nina Allen and come out from Lunar Press this mm-hmm. year. And we've just seen this past weekend the publication of All These Worlds, Reviews and Essays by Neil Harrison. My question for you is, do you think there's a there's something in the water in the United Kingdom that leads to a particular kind of critical analysis and critical group that we don't see outside of the UK so much? Because you have Nina Allen, you have uh, Maureen Speller-Kincaid, Paul Kincaid, mm-hmm. Neil Harrison, John Clute, uh, Farah Mendelssohn, other critics. I don't, you don't, I don't see the same cluster of critical thinking about science fiction outside of the UK. Do you? No, and I haven't for a long time. And I've, I've thought of this, and I've heard this referred to in the past as the EasterCon group. Although these people, not all these people, necessarily go to EasterCon, but there has been a sense of community. I think Clute has been kind of the nexus of this whole community for a long time. I and mean, basically, you know, if you want to meet anybody in science fiction criticism or scholarship in the UK. You hang out at the Camden Street flat of the Clutes long enough, and they'll show up. Um, and, and and then includes major writers, and some of the people you're talking about are also major novelists. Nina Allen, for example, Chris Priest is part of this group. Mike Harrison is part of this group. Um, it it seems to me that partly that the, there's been much more of a community there for decades, really. Um, whereas in the United States, uh, the community is more atomized. There's a I see this when I go to. Uh, to the International Conference on the Fantastic. There's a small cluster of academics uh, who are very active and talk to each other, and they're members of the Science Fiction Research Association, and they include you know, some, some major figures now, like Lisa Yasek, for example. But and that group is sort of divorced from um, the, the, the kind of what I think of writer-slash-critic community, of which there are fewer and fewer. We have uh, Locus, for example, has runs reviews online, especially by Paul De Filippo, uh, who is kind of crossing the line uh, between both. But but there's not that group of people. There's no there's no venue in the United States, for example, by which a Maureen Kincaid Speller or a Neil Harrison could publish the way they could publish in Vector or Foundation and this sort of thing. If you look at Foundation as an academic journal. It's kind of partly a professional journal. It's partly a writer's journal. It's partly uh, academic. It looks and reads differently from the American journals or the American slash Canadian journals like science fiction studies and mm-hmm. extrapolation. So yeah, there, there, there's much more. I've always, I've always envied that community. I've always thought, uh, you know, you can hang out with all the important people uh, on, on one weekend or all the people that you've known for years. And there's no place like that really in the United States. There's no group mm. like that that I can think of. Now, I know I think I, well, I think I threw this to you for review, and it ties into this as well. Have you read All These Worlds, the Neil Harrison book? I'm about uh, a third of the way through it right now. And I'm, I'm How are you finding things. it? Uh, well, Neil is one of the better critics over the last several years. But the tone of the essays is much more technical criticism and less. It's not academic. Um, these are the kinds of things that would appear in Vector or Strange Horizons or kind of uh, what you call literary culture essays. I don't know um, 
the, the, the closest I can think of to that kind of community is the ReaderCon community in the United States. Um, but I wonder, it's, I've often thought that there was, over the years, a kind of community like that in Australia as well, where you did have a few writers, and you and Jack Dan, and, and certainly people like Terry Dowling seemed to be writing stuff about fantasy and science fiction. But maybe they were never a community in the sense I thought they were. No, they very much were. And I think we have to sort of go back a phase if we're going to touch on that Australian critical group, which were connected to the UK group, right? Yeah, right. Through Peter Nichols, right? So Peter, Peter Nichols, Nichols and Claire Coney were there. Uh, certainly Russell and Jenny Blackford were involved. Right. Certainly uh, Janine Webb was a very active part of it as well. Uh, I think it was in what's, uh, ASFR, Australian Science Fiction Review, John Baxter, John Bankson, mm. uh, Damien Broderick, who's now in Texas whole bunch of people were producing a lot of interesting, substantial criticism and fanzines. You had people like Bruce Gillespie producing um, really substantial fanzines for a long period of time and including correspondence and work from Gene Wolfe and Ursula Le Guin mm-hmm. and whatever else. Though, not exclusively, but the majority of the criticism and review conversation in that space was outward looking, looking towards the United States rather yeah. than inward looking particularly towards Australian science fiction and fantasy, which is atomized in its own strange and unusual way. But in a sense, wasn't there, I'm not sure that it was deliberately looking outward from Australia so much as wanting to be part of this global conversation mm. and especially the, the British conversation. Um, well, I mean, I, mean, I think the, the one thing the British and the Australian conversations has in, have in common, and I suspect if you were to go around and look around the world at any critical conversation about science fiction that ha- that's happening in India, in Pakistan, in mm-hmm. parts of Africa, wherever else, through Southeast Asia, it too will be US-focused because the North American market is such a significant part of the science fiction market in the English language. Well, I mean, that's simply um, a matter of reality. I remember talking to, again, a Choi Donald-Lekpeki about this. Anybody who grew up in, in Africa or in Asia or in Europe uh, or in, in, in South America, will have grown up reading a lot of American science fiction because that was the science fiction that got translated, that got marketed, that got sold there. I mean, people all over the world uh, have similar stories about reading Arthur Clarke when they were teenagers. Uh, so, so, so I think that, you're right, that has to do a lot with the market. It has nothing, it has very little to do with whether or not anybody in these countries were writing science fiction. But mm. universally, uh, the complaint that you will see uh, in introductions to these international anthologies is that, no, the literary establishment in, in India or Korea or Japan or Pakistan or Nigeria didn't want to deal with science fiction for decades. And so mm. what if you wanted to read it, you probably were going to read American or British science fiction. Yeah, I think that's probably. So, yes, anyway, so all these worlds, something to look at, you you're suggest it's worth paying mm-hmm. attention to, and I know you can buy it online from Briar Dean Books, uh, and then, of course, I'm looking forward to the Maureen Kincaid Speller book. Uh, I think Nina Allen's a very interesting person to have assembling it, so I'm sure it'll be of, of substance. Mm-hmm. And I think M. John Harrison has a literary biography coming out or something. It's an autobiography, I believe, yeah. A uh, memoir, at least. Which should be interesting. Well, one of the things that you mentioned, though, when you mentioned the category of best related work, is that brings up another issue which seems to be increasingly intractable because best-related work uh, for a long time referred to critical or even reference works. I mean, I think the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction may have won that category a couple of times. Uh, I was nominated in that category once. Uh, At one point, that category was largely considered books about science fiction or in some cases, memoirs. Uh, Asimov, I think, his autobiographies got nominated, maybe even Piers Anthony's autobiography. But it seems to me in the last few years that that category has been dominated by works that are not books about science fiction at all, that are not nonfiction, that are that are blog posts, that are speeches, that are media uh, uh, events. Do you mean? Do you mean as in terms of the winners or the nominees? I think both. I, my sense is that the nominees have been. Um, fewer and fewer of them have been uh, actual nonfiction books. It's interesting to test these things against. Very unfairly, I'm not trying to play tricks on you because I didn't uh-huh. know going to do this. I just looked at okay. what's actually won over the last, say, 10 years or so. And you've got a nonfiction book, not a critical book, but a um, 
oh, whatever you call it, Never, Never Say You Can't Survive, Charlie Jane Andrews' book of essays. Okay. That was last year. Before that, it was um, Beowulf by uh, Maria Davna Headley, right. which, uh, you know, is, I guess, both a it's a creative, critical, whatever, or, or, whatever you want to call it, work, but not necessarily... Uh, you know that kind of an, an analytical analytical book you talk about. Well, the, the, you, pa- just pause for, for that for a second. You can certainly make an argument that that's a related work. Beowulf is not. Oh, a absolutely. Thing. It's not a many sense. Am, am yeah, I it, casting any aspersion on right. that at all? Uh, it's a brilliant book. Then in 2020 and 2019, you have not books being nom- not winning. So mm-hmm. you've got an award speech that wins. This is the 2019 Campbell Award acceptance speech by Jeanette Ning. Then uh, the year before that, archive archive of our own win. But then you mm-hmm. step back and you've got a book of Le Guin, uh, 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 critical work in 2018, Le Guin, Le Guin critical work in 2017, a, an essay in 2014, because 16 and 15 were no award years, a podcast in 2013, which I think segues into why the fan cast uh-huh. pedigree agrees. And then f- before that, all books. So from 2012 backwards to 1980 when the award kicks off, it's exactly the kind of books you, uh, thing you're talking about. Yeah. So it's not as big a wobble as perhaps it feels sometimes. Well, I mean, I think one of the issues, uh, it's always an issue with the Hugo Awards. As, as we say, it comes up with the, with the what I think of the community categories, the fan category, uh, which includes fan cast, is that uh, you're going to have fewer and fewer people reading uh, books about science fiction. They're one of the, one of the big lavish books, for example, uh, that would have been eligible, I think, last year, would have been the visual history of science fiction, this first fandom, giant, uh, lush art book put out by uh, the first fandom experience. And and uh, my argument is that probably 20 or 30 years ago, that would have won hands down. It's yeah. a very specific kind of pulp history. Um, but the par- problem with something like that is that very few people are going to see it. It costs something like, I don't know, $100, $150 to see. So... So a book like that is likely not to get uh, nominated simply because so few people will have seen it. Um, I, I do think, and I would, I would have to look at the definition of the category for this to be at all meaningful, that some people, some nominators are plainly latching onto the related work description to put mm-hmm. anything else in there. And that then you're seeing worthy things that aren't books making the list, you know? Okay, and so... Okay. Yeah. Well, I was about to say something that may sound too cranky. Um, you're be finding careful. We're, we're trying not to be cranky, old white guys. I, well, I, I'm, I'm a cranky. I, I'm, I'm genuinely old, so I, I, I can. But you're not usually white. too cranky. Well, I'm not. I, let me put it this way. Don't crankify uh, it up, Gary. No, I'm not saying that any particular work is unworthy of a nomination because I think if something attracts that much attention, my point is that things that are shorter and easier to read are probably more likely to get nominated than long, complex argument. For, for that category? For that category. Uh, I don't know that's supported by the nominations, Gary. You know, um, pick a, if you pick a random year for this, this particular thing, right, for, for mm-hmm. best related work, random year, doesn't matter what it is. Let's pick 2017 and see if we can, where are you? Okay. And I, I've picked it at random because of, and what, what were up? Okay. I, the, the, a book of criticism by Ursula Le Guin, which won. Yeah. A book of essays and criticism by Cameron Hurley. A memoir by Carrie Fisher. A book of uh, interviews and criticism by uh, Robert Silverberg with Alvaro Zenos Amaro. A book of essays by Neil Gaiman. And a book of critical posts on Tor.com by Sarah Gailey. I would argue that none of them meet your, your definition, except for no. maybe the Sarah Gailey. Uh, well, the Sarah Gailey was probably more accessible than the others because it was available online. But the others mm-hmm. absolutely do not support my point. I could, I could possibly even be wrong. I don't know. I th- uh, uh, let, let's look at. Let's go back ten years. Two thousand seven. Okay, let's do two thousand seven. A critical biography of uh, Alice B. Sheldon. A collection of Samuel Delaney essays. A John Picaccio art book. A analytical book about Heinlein's juveniles and a, a collection of World uh, Guest of Honor speeches. None of those meet your definition. Let's say it's just a, t- a current temporary thing. And there's a reason okay. I think this is worth looking at because it's something that I do, and so I'm going to guess other people do, right? Best related work was, and this might be a year of an example, uh-huh. Beowulf by Maria Davana Headley, which we've already said is that thoroughly hmm. worthwhile uh, thing. There was the Conzealand Fringe, organized by Claire Rousseau. Firecon, um, 
Natalie Lore's uh, blog post about George R.R. R. Martin's Hugo Awards. Yeah. Uh, Linnell George's book about Octavia Butler and a piece, an article called The Last Brony Connor Fandom Autopsy, which I, su- I don't know the format of it, so I can't comment mm. on That might arguably be closer to what you're talking about. Um, but even so, there are still works of sub, well, not substance. There are works which meet the older appearance of things, things like critical books, critical essay, that kind of thing as well. So it's like, there's a, 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 a slight blurring in the most recent of years, but I don't think it's a thing that's consistent enough to be looked on as being a major change. No, I didn't, I, I would not argue with something that's been going on over the last 20 years. It seemed to me that there were, and I'm not, I, I did not have a dog in the race for the last five or six years. So yeah. uh, none of that bothers me. I mean, the Le Guin just, just, just super quickly, the year before that, it's six nominees, five of them were substantial books, and one was a was Jeanette Ng's uh, award acceptance speech. So, okay. On the other hand, Jeanette Ng's speech was the one that won that year, I believe. It, it did. I think it incited a lot of at- attention and a lot of passion. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, okay, I'll, I'll stand corrected on my earlier claim that maybe this is... Uh, I mean, I, I would also argue, for perfectly good reasons, that the Le Guin essays one was the year of, after she died i believe and maybe the other may have been the year before she died um and there's i, I would have no argument whatsoever that any collection of essays by Le Guin is uh is worth a nomination um and any category is always going to miss out stuff that should have been nominated or should oh, yeah. have won you know i don't think there's ever been a year or ever been a category where you haven't been able to look at the Hugos and gone, but it should have included this. Why did it include that? It's part of the nature of awards that you get to have fun chatting and handicapping them. Part of it also related work is such a vague kind of, that Mm. you know, for a long time. Well, I mean, it seemed to be nonfiction. There are categories. uh, Other awards have nonfiction categories, for example. Mm. I think the Mm. one year I may have been up for a Hugo was, uh, I think, I'm not sure you could look it up because I don't have it in front of me, but I think I lost to an art book. And so you're taking, in this case, a collection of essays, and I I may be misremembering it, but I think it was The Art of Neil Gaiman, which of course is going to win, uh, even though it's... And, and, and yet, I never thought that I was going to be in competition with an art book. And if I had known that, I would never have thought I had a chance <laughs> in hell, which in fact I didn't. Well, I mean, look, well, two of your books were up for Hugo's, right? In 06 and 11. Oh, I didn't know there were two. Okay. Well, thanks. You're better, than, you're better, you're better than you think. Ah. Stop. I mean, come on. So you're up in 06 for Soundings, mm-hmm. and they, the award goes to Kate Wilhelm for Storyteller, which was, right. uh, I think. And then you're up in uh, 11 for, where is it sitting here? Uh, for Bearings. Hmm. And uh, chicks dig time. Time lords, the celebration of Doctor Who by the women who love it was the ah, okay. So you know, no, I was, I was not meaning to sound like sour grapes. I'd forgotten about that second it's nomination that entirely. But 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 by and large, it's uh, it, it, it it's a sl- let me put it this way: it has the potential for being a very sloppy category. And I stand corrected that the voters over the years have more often than not at least in the Very nominating true. process, recognized uh, substantial works. It also raises really another, interesting, another interesting point about the Hugos in general, which we've talked about before, and that is there's a huge difference between the nominating process and the final voting process, so that you have a number of people voting on the awards who, once they see the list of nominees, have never heard of four out of five of these nominees, and they're going to vote for the one they've heard of. Well, I mean, yes, even though within a significant readership, and I see it happen, the Hugo ballot comes out, Mm -hmm. and then immediately people are off reading those books to try and make a decision. You know, Um, you you look last year, people, I think nominees were Arcadia Martin's Desolation Called Peace, which won, Mm -hmm. but then also Becky Chambers' The Galaxy and the Grand Within, uh, Rika Aoki's Light from Uncommon Stars, P. Jelly Clark's A Master of Gin, Andy Weir's Project Hell Marion, Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun. And I know people were off reading those books trying to get a feel for what they might want to vote and support out of those because it becomes a very different horse race, the difference between nominating and voting. It's always interesting to look at the Hugo role figures as much as anything because then you see the nominating population, which is a different population from the voting population, does its thing. And they nominate X, Y, Z works, 
And they'll probably, you know, when you see the raw rankings, you'll think, well, this was like clearly the favorite of that group. But when the people are actually looking at the list of what's eligible, what's actually been nominated, then it all changes. Yeah. And, you know, you see sort of the winner emerge sometimes surprisingly, but you know. Well, the, and, and it's, it's something that I had to learn from you and, and, and from our friend Liza Trombe how to read those incredibly complicated statistics when they talk about eliminating votes and assigning those votes to the next one and so forth and so on. Um, it's not a broken system. I guess, I guess to get back to our original point, does it need new categories? Does it need to eliminate categories? Does it have too many categories? I know from my couple of friends in the romance writers, Hugos have nothing on the RWA when it comes to numbers of categories, let alone things like the Grammys. So I don't think it needs fixing. I think people have this impulse no. to want to, but it strikes me well, that... I think every time something you loved or something you felt should have been up doesn't get up. There's that like, well, how do you fix it so that it does? When in fact, quite often you just you just go with it. I mean, I saw someone kind of outraged at this year's Nebula nominees and how certain works weren't nominated and how could that possibly have happened? Something must be broken, uh -huh. right? And then you look at the categories and you're going, well, I mean, I think probably this year what happened was there was a bunch of excellent work. People were looking for maybe more comforting than challenging work, perhaps. And so that came through. I mean, you know, and that happens. It happens everywhere. I mean, one of the issues that came up a lot with this year's Academy Awards was a science fiction work actually wins. Uh, and whether it was classically, structurally, uh, literarily, the best movie of the year wasn't the point. It was something so interesting and different that people were absolutely uh, in enchanted by it, I thought, and, and fascinated mm. by it. And, and I, I don't think I would argue against its winning all the uh, Oscars it did, but I think that you're using a different set of a different set of evaluative criteria when you're looking at something which is that fresh. And I think the same thing happens. Uh, for example, I go back to Tamsin Muir's novels. Uh, the, for at least the first one was radically new. Uh, you don't yeah. expect complete radical newness over the second and the third. You still got a lot of inventiveness, but basically, people like something that looks new and different. I'm hoping that uh, I don't have terrifically optimistic expectations, but I think that this past year, Ray Naylor's novel was one of the ones that struck me as being terrifically new, and maybe people will respond to that, or maybe they won't read it at all. I don't know. I would be a little surprised if The Mountain in the Sea, having made the Nebula ballot, doesn't make the Hugo ballot. I would be surprised. I would be fall down sh shocked if R.F. Quang's book Babel doesn't make it. Right. I think the, they're kind of no-brainers. No I think the Travis Baldry Legends and Lattes is emerging as a, a dark horse. I could see it being a likely Hugo nominee as well. Mm -hmm. As for other things, I'd have to go back and look at lists to, to, to refresh my memory because these things all go past so fast and then you're in the middle of reading this year's books, not last year's books, and paying right. attention to Right, I'm always confused. I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself confused because I think about nominating things, and you mentioned, for example, Feed Them Silence, the Lee Mandelo thing, and I'm thinking, yeah, but no, it's, it's actually this year, so I have to worry about that next spring, I suppose. Um, exactly. I want to bring up one other issue. We have, yes. only ten, we have only 10 minutes left, and there was a, uh, a, a post which I thought you were going to suggest we talk about. But a few, a few weeks ago, you made an interesting post about beginnings of stories and what draws you oh, yeah. into a story and what can uh, drop you out of a story, which was of great interest to people on, on Facebook and Twitter because as an editor, you were kind of potentially giving away secrets about what makes me reject a story. But at the same time you were writing that, that I was thinking, uh, for reasons that I no longer recall, about the importance of a title to a story. And it occurred mm -hmm. to me that the first two things you encounter in any story, of course, are the title and the first paragraph. Um, and are there great... What should a title do and what should a first paragraph do, I guess, are the questions we're getting at. Hmm. First of all, every should, obviously, is a thing. Uh, I think the title has to be not the, the the first thing they have to be is be not clumsy, which might seem like a odd and not very helpful thing to say. But right. if you pick up something to read it, you're already predisposed towards wanting to read it. Mm -hmm. um, if the title's clumsy, it might dissuade you slightly. Though I'm not sure. I think it's more with titles. It's more if it's good, it will intrigue you enough to you know continue. Yeah. And this was this was arguably Harlan Ellison's greatest skill 
wasn't writing stories at all. It was titling that become was fabulous great titles for stories. Yeah. And in fact, Terry Dowling also is very good at it. He, you know, sort of, uh, but there's a, a whole array of people. First paragraphs, I think they, the first job is not to put you off. Now, you know, I, I was thinking about this when I was looking when I, when, at the time last the other week because I went and looked at uh, Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. and the opening paragraph for Clockwork Orange, which is famously written in a kind of dialect, fake Russian, with, with words which are don't mean what you might expect right. them to mean. That's really interesting right, when you look at it, and it, it, it touches on something I've thought about this for a long time. Uh, every alternate word is clear from context. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's an and, and that's the that, that's one thing you need to be giving people information about where they're coming in. You need to be setting a sense of feel. You need to be pulling them in. Uh, and so a good paragraph, opening paragraph, doesn't bump you out of it right away. Uh, if there's an odd word, it's got to have enough information around it mm-hmm. so that it pulls you on and makes you intrigued, rather than going, huh. It's where you're looking. For, you don't want weird metaphors quite often or you don't want odd language uh because you're trying to get people to find out what you're on about because i mean i haven't really tried to articulate this before hmm. you're trying to get that first seed of information to the reader to let them know why they should be interested what about style is that something that should be evident in the opening you mentioned a clockwork orange for example which is kind of alienating for a first paragraph well, that's the nature of the book, though. That's consistent with the rest of it as well. I mean, and that may be a thing as well, that the opening paragraph has to be, whatever it is, whether you're going for alienating style, uh, welcoming kind of storytelling voice, whatever else, it's got to be consistent with the rest of what you're going to get. It yeah. can't be, you know, a paragraph or two of oddity that is at, at, at odds with the rest of what you do. Well, I guess the uh, when you mentioned um, Anthony Burgess, the, the, the novel that came to my mind was Ridley Walker. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, Ridley Walker begins with this weird pigeon kind of English uh, that is a, a kind of post-literate society. And it's, it's at the same time, it's off-putting and intriguing. And by the time you're finished with the first paragraph, you've realized, I can read this. I can almost have to hear it, but basically I can understand it. And that makes you intrigued enough to go on with it. So it's a book that teaches you how to read the book as you're reading. It's one of the things that Gene Wolfe used to talk about with the book of the New Sun is that, you know, a part of the job of a novel is to teach you how to read the novel you're reading. Yeah. And look, a story is a seduction in a sense. So it's that first sort of, you know, come inside and see what I'm doing. This this is the first mm-hmm. point where I'm going to communicate with you. And it doesn't take much. I mean, particularly if you're reading through slush. I mean, I think Michael Swanwick uh, tagged into that conversation and made uh-huh. reference to seeing Gardner does while I go through a two and a half foot st- tack, two and a half foot tall stack of manuscripts yeah. in twenty minutes because you could re- look at the first and the last page and know at least enough to see whether it was worth reading anything else. Right. Which I know horrifies new writers because they're going, "How could you possibly know what a story's like based on the opening and closing page alone?" Which is fair. You can't know what the story's like. You can know, you what, can it- know what the writing's like. You can know about the overall competence and. When you realize that mm-hmm. you know, almost certainly in Gardner's case, he's reading for, was reading for Asimov's. So you're looking for the primary magazine, you're, you know, looking to buy for the primary magazine in the field at the time. You're looking for the highest quality stories. And so clumsiness in that opening page is enough like, no. And one thing that does happen, at least to me, and I'm sure, I suspect to other uh, editors is you're looking for, as you read through the first couple of pages, an idea of how much work you have to do. Uh, as you know, as an editor going forward, so you're uh-huh. accumulating like you're accumulating notes like in your mind just over that first paragraph, two paragraphs. You're going, I've got this much to do, this, this much, this much, this much, and then you get this point, you're going, this is going to take so much work to edit. Now, I mean, you just have not- to time out and go no. No, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm, I'm I'm sitting here with my partner Dale, who was patiently listening to us record this. We're both taught l- l- literature classes before. We both assign papers, and what you described is exactly what happens when you get a student paper coming in. If you've got a pile of student papers, you don't have the option of rejecting them, of course, but you do have that feeling of I'm just going to move this one to the bottom of the pile because this is going to be two hours of work, and I'm going to find one that's easier now. I'm just going to find I, one. What I, I find. <laughs> What I find for myself as well with fiction is I find myself f- trying to fight the editorial urge during the first three pages. Mm. Try not, I'm trying not to think yeah, about editing. And there's two points where that flicks over. Either it flicks over and I go, this is just too much no, or 
I'm now making notes to save time because I'm going to be buying this and going to be editing it later on. Hmm. Those two my, things happen all the time. And my other question is that when you've got a story like that, and let's say you're intrigued, how important is the title, or do you think the title is just malleable and you can suggest it be changed if you don't like it? I don't think, well, first, I, I don't think it's super critical. The kind of title that I fight is if it's too generic. I think uh -huh. a generic, boring title isn't going to help you. And at this point, if you've got a strong story, you're looking for everything else you can to help you. I remember talking to a, the Australian fa uh, fantasy writer, Sarah Douglas. She said a, a short story to a magazine that I was uh -huh. editing. And it was called The Joust was the name of the story. Hmm. And I thought The Joust was pretty generic and pretty dull. And Ooh. I said to her, I said, look, I'm not going to force you to change the title. There's nothing like wrong with it. But do you have any alternates? And she said, I wanted to call it Of Fingers of Foreskins, which I thought, but, but I didn't think anyone would go with it. I said, well, we'll use that title. Huh. Because right okay. away I thought, that, that's a more engaging title. Well, I was thinking of titles partly because I was, I've been reading Silvio Moreno Garcia's next novel, which is called Silver Nitrate. And I was mm -hmm. so I went back and looked. I remember reviewing uh, her first novel was called Signal to Noise. And we actually talked to her about it on this podcast. And I thought, I remember re reading Signal to Noise and thinking, that's such a common phrase. This could refer to anything from World War II uh, spy communications to radio theory to, uh, to, to, to information theory, which is where the phrase comes from originally. It's a perfectly good phrase, but it could refer to almost anything. Silver nitrate, and it's, so I thought it was an okay title uh, because, but almost generic in the way you're talking about. Silver nitrate, on the other hand, is intriguing to me because uh, if you don't know anything about film stock, about the historical use of silver nitrate film, uh, then it's just a strange combination of words. If you do, then you realize this is a novel about film history, uh, which mm -hmm. it turns out to be. And and given what we know about uh, Marina Garcia's recent novels, it's going to have some supernatural elements in it. So my sense was that she's learned how to write better titles uh, and, and very, very purposeful titles. Her last, well, not her last novel was the Dr. Moreau, the daughter of Dr. Moreau, which was clearly an illusion that placed us in a, in a literary tradition. Mm -hmm. The one before that was Mexican Gothic, which struck me as being a deliberate, and I actually saw this, I think, in an interview with her somewhere, a deliberate attempt to say, I am writing a Mexican novel, which is also a Gothic novel, so don't call it magic realism. Um, <laughs> I'm arguing with you now. Here, take this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, no, it's fine. It's an argumentative thing. But I mean, there are, in literary terms, there are novel titles which tell you this is going to be a huge topic I'm taking on. If you see yes. a title like War and Peace, you figure you're in for a thousand pages and you are. You see a title like Crime and Punishment. Um, in science fiction, I think there are classic titles that, I think The Moon is a Harsh Mistress is a terrific title for a science fiction novel that tells us a lot about what we need to know. I think The Forever War is one of the great titles in science fiction because it not only describes the book very well, but it's a phrase which has entered the language in all kinds of ways since then. Um, but on the other hand, and, and, and The Left Hand of Darkness is a good title because it sort of reflects the philosophy, the kind of semi-Taoist philosophy we're going to see in the book. On the other hand, what I think is actually a better novel of Le Guin's, The Dispossessed, is kind of a generic title. It's like, uh, mm. if it weren't Le Guin... If it is Le Guin and we know what she's interested in, then The Dispossessed takes on meaning. As a title by itself, it could refer to any number of historical or realistic or, or grim Dickensian novels. The Dispossessed could refer yeah. to most Dickens characters. Um, and then there, I mean, I will say, yeah, I will say as an editor, I've never forced anyone to change a title. Um, my guess is that not very many readers would choose titles uh, – as a way of reading something. In other words, when I put, when you put together a title, actually one of the better titles of anthologies this past year, I thought was Someone in Time, because of its deliberate allusion to a famous movie and novel and a theme and so forth and so on. So once you're into that anthology as a reader, once I'm into it, I'm not, I'm not really that interested in the titles of the individual stories because I know generally the arena that you're mm -hmm. operating in. And so... So the title becomes less important. When you have the year's best, for example, uh, a title, I, I will first of all go to an author I've, I, I like and I know I'm going to enjoy his story if it's going to be a 
Ted Chang story, it'll be terrific, you know, whatever. If it'll be a Sarah Prince Pinsker story, it'll be a good story. But beyond that, I might look at the titles and figure out that sounds kind of vaguely intriguing. But but by the time you get around to looking at titles in an anthology, you've already bought the damn book, so you really have <laughs> no choice. <laughs> well, yes, yes, that's true. Anyway, we're over our time. Mm. We should wind up. We don't want to bore these people, Gary. We 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 give them an hour. That's enough. No. If anybody wants to argue for the best and worst titles in science fiction, I'd love to see emails about that. <laughs> oh, I can think of some bad title. There are some, some really, really bad titles. titles, yes. But we probably should we shall, that. We will draw a polite curtain over that and say we will talk to people again pretty soon. We'll be talking to people pretty soon. We'll have some guests. We have some guests more or less lined up, which we're overdue with. And we're going into what is... Well, I was going to say spring here in the northern hemisphere, and I guess whatever you use for autumn fall. there in the fall. Okay, yes, right. We're in Jiren. Yeah, well, leaves don't fall from trees where you are, do they? Oh, no, some, there's some do. Some do. Yeah. But not the same way, no. Okay, right. Until then, okay, anyway, and, and, until we get back together with our friends, uh, thank you for, for your patience in waiting for this edition of what was, again, the Cood Street Podcast. Yet again.